This edition of the Geeks at the Gates is brought to you by Destination Venus, Harrogate's premier comic shop. Find us on the web, www.destinationvenus.co.uk, on Twitter, at DVComicShop, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash destinationvenuscomics. Here at Destination Venus, we stock all kinds of comics because we love all kinds of comics. So whether you're a Marvel zombie, an image initiate, a DC diva, a fan of the small press, an aftershock... I can't think of a one for that, but you know what, you, you get where we're coming from here. If it's a comic and you want it, we've either got it, or we'll get it if it's out there to be got. So whatever kinds of comics you love, give us a try. Destination Venus. Love. Comics. Welcome to the Geeks at the Gates. Uh, a bit of a rebirth for us and a bit of an odd episode. This is the first episode of the Geeks at the Gates that will be posted on iTunes, so it's almost certainly the first episode that a lot of you will be hearing. Previous episodes are available on SoundCloud. Um, I may put them up on iTunes, but to be honest, they were largely us experimenting and playing about, so maybe not. Don't know. I don't know. We'll see about that. Anyway... This is who we are. The Geeks at the Gates are a bunch of geeks, um, mostly, but not exclusively, based in Harrogate in North Yorkshire, and every so often we get together in a comic shop to talk about stuff, and we decided we'd record those conversations and put them on the internet because, well, why not, really? Um, we're not strictly wedded to this format in any way at all, and so this week's episode is actually slightly different. It's an interview with the writer and games developer and all-round good egg, uh, Anthony Johnston, whose graphic novel The Coldest City is about to be released as a movie under the slightly more sensational title Atomic Blonde, which we'll get into in the interview. Now, I have to slightly apologise for this, and those of you who've listened to the podcast before, or who have been into the shop, uh, will know this already. I am the least organised person ever. I also have a complete inability to read a calendar, uh, which is why Anthony is interviewed just by me in this episode. The plan was there was going to be two or three of the regular geeks in attendance as well, but I told them all the wrong day. So Anthony turned up the day before I'd told everyone to come in for the interview. So it was just me. And I feel really stupid, but there you go. Um, which, of course, begs the question, if you are a new listener, who the hell am I? Um, I am Reggie Rigby, a wannabe writer, sometime critic. I used to have a column on the internet which was moderately popular for a bit. And I am the owner of the aforementioned comic book store, Destination Venus Comics in Harrogate. That's pretty much all you need to know, really. Any other salient biographical details will probably crop up in the future of the podcast. So, thank you for listening to my preamble, which has gone for over three minutes now, which is ridiculous. Uh, so, without further ado, over to me, and over to Anthony. Joining me is Anthony Johnston, a writer, game developer, podcaster, fairly sure he probably rescues maidens and um, saves galaxies as well. Anthony, welcome. Hello, hello. So this is just me and you, one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, absolutely. Mano a mano. A uh, little FaceTime, yeah. So, um, 
I figure we'll start, first of all, by um, acquainting listeners who aren't familiar with your work, and there must be one or two. I'm sure there are more than one. Exactly what you're known for. I mean, you, you come, your immediate thing uh, coming up is the imminent release of the movie Atomic Blonde, which is based on a graphic novel that you wrote, uh, but gave a much less sensational title, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's based on a graphic novel I wrote called The Coldest City. We have now released uh, a paperback edition with uh, a title to match the movie, so that's called Atomic Blonde, subtitle, The Coldest City, in the same way that uh, Arrival was based on the story of your, what is this short story called? The Story of Your Life or The Time of Your Life? Something like that, yeah. Um, and they re- re-released that under the name Arrival because they're not stupid, neither are we. So <laughs> there is a new edition called Atomic Blonde, but the original hardback is still called The Coldest City. And yeah, that came out in 2012. And just before it was released, actually, it was optioned by Charlie's Theron's production company to make into a movie. And that happened. They filmed it about 18 months ago now. And it will be released in the US July 28th. And over here in Europe, August 11th. I can see you've got all of these dates memorised. and <laughs> I've uh, I've had to tell people this sort of thing quite a lot. Yeah, I, I imagine. <laughs> um, I, I hadn't realised it was actually Charlize Theron's production company that was... Yes. Ah. Yes, uh, that's why she. we always knew that if it got made, she would be the star. She, her people liked it, they took it to her, she liked it, and it was always because she was looking for a vehicle for herself to do this sort of movie because frankly it's not the sort of part that women often get off no there's there's there isn't that much i mean female action heroes are i mean well to the point where upon seeing the first trailer the immediate reaction of most people was either oh it looks like a female john wick which you can mm-hmm. understand because the director david leach was one of the co-directors of john wick <laughs> and the cinematographer and the editor and part of the stunt team and you know are all people there's some overlap there. yeah there is a little overlap however they probably wouldn't have been saying that if there were more movies like john wick with women to start with i was gonna say i mean it's, it would be equally valid to say that john wick is kind of like a male atomic blonde but nobody would ever say that well or just like born without spies yeah you know it's uh, for movies with that star men these comparisons are just then never made the other comparison was to Salt the Angelina Jolie mm. movie which ironically originally was written for a male character and then rewritten when I think Tom Cruise was it dropped out and she took over as the star again something like that that was an interesting casting decision I thought it, well, I, I, I thought it worked Salt. yeah, I, yeah it worked. I mean it gets a bit of a bad rap I thought it was okay but again that movie is like five, six years old, maybe more. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the first comparisons people make to this movie. And that's purely because there aren't enough movies like this yeah. for female yeah, that, that hasn't, actors. There hasn't been anything else in between. Yeah. It, Whereas it's crazy. It, if you're looking for sort of male-driven action movies Take in pick. the last five years, <laughs> yeah. um, all of them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it, you're like a pig in filth. Just like, you know, close your eyes, point, and there's your movie. So... Yeah. As I say, that's one of the reasons why Charlize particularly wanted to option this herself to ensure that she was in control and she would be the star and it would be a vehicle for her. Mm-hmm. And obviously we were all delighted about that. You know, that was it, that's pretty much the ideal scenario. I was going to say, I can't imagine that was disappointing. <laughs> no, not in any way. That, that's, that's a phone call I would imagine we're very pleased to get. Yeah, uh, I mean, the only, the only sort of hesitation was that up until that point... Charlize's biggest action role was in Aeon Flux, 
which is not a great movie. However, mm. she's okay in it. She's not the problem with that movie. I was gonna no, I I so I quite yeah. like Aeon Flux. I mean, yeah. it's been a while since I've watched it, but no, I wasn't keen. But then, of course, she did Mad Max, uh, yeah. and that the timing couldn't have been better because we just locked financing on this movie before after Cannes before Mad Max came out a couple of years ago. And so, of course, that was such a huge hit that suddenly everybody wanted to work with Charlize on an action movie. Yeah. So it, the timing couldn't have been better, and that's why we have such a, a, a ridiculous, amazing cast. You know, James McAvoy is the co-star, for heaven's <laughs> sake, not the star, the co-star. We have John Goodman in, you know, a fairly a supporting role. Toby Jones, Eddie Marsan, James Faulkner. It's just, it's ridiculous. Uh, Till Schweiger, the, the list goes on. Everybody wanted to work with Charlize, basically. So we got really, really lucky. And as you'd expect, with that sort of calibre of actor in it, it's really good. I, I, I've seen it, you know. Um, I mean, I was a producer, so I saw the screenplays. I saw uh, a rough edit uh, last year. Uh, you know, I've been giving notes throughout, but I saw the the finished full final product at uh, South by Southwest in Austin a couple of months ago. It really is great and surprisingly faithful to the book, <laughs> which is the question everybody always asks. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, I bet they've changed loads and they they kind of have and yet they haven't. On the one hand, you've read the book, obviously. Yes. Anybody who's read the book will also know the book is very sober. It's it's a noir. Mm. It's a John le Carré style because that's what I wanted to do. That was my stated aim with the book was to make a John le Carré style sober noir, you know, trench coats in dark alleyways yeah. kind of spy story because there aren't that many of those in comics. You know, that's actually quite rare in our medium. So that was my stated intention. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. The movie, <laughs> if you've seen any of the trailers, you'll know the movie is yeah. not that. My, my, my first reaction to the trailer was, that looks awesome, but that doesn't look like the book. Right. The, the atmosphere and the sort of overall mood and what have you is quite different. It is, whereas we went noir, it's a black and white book, very stark. Sam Hart, the artist, his art style is beautifully monochrome there's no grayscale in the book it's all pure black and white yeah again very deliberate you know deliberate choice the movie completely flips that on its head and dave leach the director said you know that was his again his stated intention was what if we make a noir that's saturated in color rather than black and white maltese falcon sort of thing that you'd you know or some mm -hmm. whatever that mm -hmm. you'd expect what if we take a noir and because it's the 80s absolutely saturated in neon and 80s colors and, you know, make it feel like a really bright, intense movie, um, which nobody's really done before. And that's exactly what the movie is. And of course, it's full of action, loads of action, because that's what Dave does. That's what he knows yeah. how to do. That's his style of movie. So in that respect, it's very different. However, the plot and the characters and even parts of the dialogue are the same. It's basically the same story. Pretty much in the same order, with a lot of the same scenes, the same characters. As I say, lines are taken wholesale from the graphic novel. Kurt Jonstad, who uh, wrote the screenplay, was way more faithful to the graphic novel than I certainly expected. I think anybody expected him to be, but certainly than I expected him to be. So it is this kind of, it's a bit split. On the one hand, it's very different. On the other hand, if you've mm -hmm. read the book, you, you, know, you do know the basic, not entirely, but the basic story but I'm, structure I'm going to recognise it yeah I, you will yeah. absolutely recognise it if you know the book it's quite strange yeah. and when I went to I, I visited the set while they were filming and Dave and Charlize and a few other people were all uh, concerned and I can understand why if they've 
you know, had this sort of thing happen before, they were all concerned that I might freak out, that things mm-hmm. were quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, Temperamental writers and all of that. Exactly, yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a fair... I can't really complain. That's a fair stereotype. We are a bit neurotic. <laughs> but what they didn't know, and what a lot of people don't know, and, and I always point this out, is I do adaptations myself. Mm. I write graphic novel adaptations of books and prose works. I've done uh, graphic novel versions of poetry by Alan Moore, for heaven's sake, of a screenplay by Alan as well, which is uh, Fashion Beast. Um I write the Alex Ryder graphic novels, which are all based on the, the wonderful YA books by Anthony Horowitz. So mm-hmm. I've been on the other side of that fence, so to speak. I understand how the process works, and I understand that you have to change things when you move a story from one medium to another. What works in a book... Doesn't necessarily work on screen. Yes, yeah. or on a comic page, yeah. even. Uh, and so, yeah, so I'm I have a fairly relaxed i guess attitude towards that sort of thing when it comes to adaptations of stories whether it be the comics novels whatever to the screen and i made sure to point this out i mean my favorite movie of all time is blade runner which is if you've read the story nothing like on, nothing like the story nothing like the android's dream of electric sheep and good right exactly i love androids the story and i love blade runner the movie they are mm. both great things and you can see the dna of one in the other but they are not the same thing, and that's okay. Going back to Bourne, the Bourne Identity is another good example. The book of the Bourne, Robert Ludlum's Bourne Identity book is nothing like the movie. Or rather, I should say, the movie is nothing like yeah. his book. There are maybe three common elements that they've taken from the mm-hmm. book, and everything else is completely different. And yet again, great book, great movie. So I tried to impress that upon them and say, look, you change what you need to change to make this the best movie that you can. I have written, and Sam has drawn, we have made the best graphic novel that we can. Now it's your job to make the best movie that you can. And if that requires changing things, you go ahead, you know, use your judgment. This is what you do. You know, graphic novels is what we do. The movies is what you do. Do what you're good at. And I think that helped. I think that assuaged some concerns. Everybody, mm. everybody kind of exhaled. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He's everybody not going to... Breathe yeah. a sigh of relief. He's not yeah. going to sulk. Yeah, um, right. He's not yeah. going to throw a tantrum or something. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really kind of relaxed about that sort of thing. I love... There's that old story of... Ah, oh, and I can't remember who it was. Was it Raymond Carver or... Oh, I can't remember. But one of the sort of, you know, noir writers of the Golden Age... Somebody said, like, how do you feel about Hollywood ruining all your books? And he just pointed to his bookshelf and he said, said yeah, Hollywood haven't ruined anything. They're all still there. They're still there, yeah. You know, the movies are a different thing. I, I wish more people thought like that. I get It really annoys me when you, know, when you get things like the new Ghostbusters. I love the new Ghostbusters. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Um, I don't go to the movies. I've got no social life. Um, <laughs> but there were so many people whinging online about, oh, they've ruined my childhood. No, they haven't. Yeah, it's still there. The 1984 Ghostbusters still exists, and you are completely free to ignore the new thing. Exactly, exactly. You know, and, you know make no mistake, the 1984 Ghostbusters, I loved it. That was one of my favourite movies when I was a kid, and I still love it. It hasn't aged well in terms of some of the joke subject matter. <laughs> no, the special you know? effects hold up remarkably well. Right, right. But, you know, there are some jokes in there that are a bit kind of, whoa, you there, know. There are, some, there are some that you would, but then look at any 80s comedy, and you, it's exactly. full of jokes you would never touch now. Right, you've got to take it in context. And in context, it is still a brilliant funny movie and so is the new ghostbusters in my mm-hmm. opinion i haven't laughed that much at a movie in a long time when i went to see that i really really enjoyed it um mm. it's, on, it's on my list 
Yeah, no, definitely should go and see that. So yeah, graphic novels, movies, different thing. You know, um, mm-hmm. I have always, I mean, a few of my things have been optioned uh, over the years. This is the first one that's been gone through the whole process and been made. Yeah. But a few of my things have been optioned. And, but I am not one of these people who, and I'm not going to name names, but yeah, there are writers out there who do this. I'm not one of those writers who writes a comic with the express intention of trying to get it optioned as a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so writes it in a way that I think will appeal to, you know, Hollywood and make it look like a, quote, movie on paper. I don't do that because I have always believed that you should write a story as best you can to take the best advantage of the medium that you're working in. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get a great story. And if you have a great story, honestly, you know, even if your aim is to get Hollywood to option things, which, as I say, it's not really, it doesn't, it's not on my mind at all. But if that is your aim, frankly, the best way of doing that is to make the best comic, book, poetry, chapbook, whatever yeah. that you can. Make a great work and then let them worry about how they're going to turn it into a movie. You yeah, know? if it's good, you'll attract their attention. Yeah, and... I've got Watchmen. Yeah. Famously, you know, said to be unfilmable for, what, 30 years or something, you know. Nobody cared. It didn't matter that everybody, everybody read it and said, well, you can't make that as a movie. Didn't stop them all optioning it. That was, mm. from the moment it was released, that was optioned yeah. for movie, you know, for decades until it finally got made. Um, because you've got this, this background in adaptation were you tempted to kind of have a crack at doing the screenplay for this yourself no uh that's a question that a few people ask me uh, during the process even um but no partly because i have no track record writing a script and not that i don't think i couldn't do it Mm -hmm. but there are there are two there's a practical consideration and a sort of artistic consideration the practical consideration is simply that I have no uh, clout as a screenwriter. Nobody is interested in reading my adaptation of my own graphic novel, you know? Yeah. Whereas Kurt has movies under his belt. He's an experienced screenwriter. He's in demand. You know, he was a good guy. to, And this is his sort of wheelhouse in terms of subject matter. So him writing the screenplay got people to go, oh, okay, I'll read that. So he's got the track record. He's got the skills. Yeah. He's got, yeah. So there's that practical, just purely sort of commercial practical consideration. Mm -hmm. The artistic consideration is that adapting your own work is tricky. There's that wonderful uh, sequence in Brian Bendis' Fortune and Glory, if you remember, where he wrote the screenplay to, I think, was it Torso? Uh, Mm, Yeah. Yeah, was it? Yeah. Right. And he believed that he was being incredibly ruthless and cutting out everything and like cutting it right down to the bare bones and then it was a 200 page screenplay because actually yeah. he'd hardly cut anything and he couldn't he couldn't kill his darlings exactly um, yeah exactly and that is that is always a concern uh, when you're adapting your own work not to say that i'd never do it but combined with in this case the practical consideration that we needed a screenplay in order to start getting attention from studios get financing etc mm-hmm. etc it, I was never even momentarily tempted. Like I say, I read the screenplay, I read all every draft of the screenplay, um, and gave notes on it and stuff. But they were they weren't notes of how dare you delete this scene or change this <laughs> thing or blah blah blah. You know, they, I deliberately stayed away from those kind of notes, and instead I focused on story logic and what ifs and uh, Britishisms because I was the only person behind the camera as it, who actually is a Brit. Uh, right. So there, there were a few instances where I had to. Uh, say we don't actually say that you know that's not a phrase that british people use and and things like that especially not in the late 1980s yeah so you see you're kind of oh blimey gavner alert absolutely yes yes Uh, or worse yeah more actually uh, i shouldn't say worse not really worse more americanisms 
things that you don't right, right, right. realise yeah. are basically things that only Americans say. Mm. Um, and to be fair, being a British person who writes mainly for the American market, I fall foul of this myself in the other direction. You know, I've written things. Where you put I've, British things in, yeah. Where I then had American friends read it and say, "You know, we don't actually say that. That's a thing you Brits yeah. say." Um, yeah. So you know, it's it's hard to I get can, to. I can see that's that. tricky, actually, because because by definition, you know, by its very nature, it's something that you don't think about. Exactly. Well, you unless you have to, and this is why, and this is very common. Uh, myself and many other, especially comics writers, because our you know ninety percent of our market these days is America. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of train ourselves to write in Americanisms, and frankly, it starts bleeding into our real lives and our real speech. Yeah. And so I, you... um, you know, it's not unknown for me to use American spellings uh, of things in emails, whether to American or British. Uh, as a Dropping the U's and... As a teacher of many years, I can tell you that (laughs) with the rise of social media and the fact that no one ever takes their spell checker off of American as a default... Oh, I do. um, Well, you do, because you're a professional, but um, I'm afraid American spellings are becoming universal. Right. Um, It's not that I stopped correcting them, I I just stopped being bothered by them. But phrasing as well, not just spelling. Things like, uh, you know, it's very common, and this is really getting into, I hope this is interesting, <laughs> listeners, this is really getting into the weeds, but for example, when we, it's wanna, all right, we're geeks. When we want to say two or three minutes, we mm-hmm. would say a couple of minutes. Yeah. A couple of minutes. Americans might say that, depending on where they're from in, in mm-hmm. the States, or they might say a couple minutes yeah. and drop the of. Yes. I do that all the time now in my own, not so much my speech, but in my writing. If I'm, and I think that's yeah. because... I'm so used to writing it in dialogue, you know, literally typing it, that when I'm typing emails or writing an essay or whatever, I will often use that phrase and type it that way. I think there's a certain amount of muscle memory going on. Yeah. Um, and, and, and there are others. That's just the one I can think of off the top of my head. But there are many instances of that sort of thing. So you do kind of have to immerse yourself into this culture because it is, you know, the dominant pop culture culture. Yeah, it's, it, it is. It's the... Yeah. Whereas that's not the other way around. You know, it's not vice versa for Americans. They're not. They don't really have any sort of professional uh, need to immerse themselves in British culture. No, we're not. We're not a big enough market. Right. Unless they're suddenly going to start writing Downton Abbey or something, it's not something they ever have to concern themselves with. So that's that's coldest coldest city. I'm 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 afraid I always think of it as coldest city. I can't think of it as atomic blonde. Um, That might change when I've seen the movie. We've digressed so much. I'm not sure if we actually. Uh, so yeah, we we mentioned the release dates. Okay, that's good. And uh, I mentioned the cast. Yeah, no, I, I think we I think we did cover just where. Yeah. Basically, like I say, obviously I'm biased, you know, but at the same time I like to think of myself as a fairly level-headed guy, and it really I, I, is. I think I can vouch movie. for you there. It's it's not Hamlet. It's not Othello. You know, it is an action adventure movie with loads of kicking and things blowing up and guns and what have you. Sounds um, awesome. And twisty, turny, pulpy spy plot and stuff like that. But if you like that, and I do, <laughs> if you like that, it's a great movie. So has the prequel been optioned? Coldest Winter. Uh, not by itself. To be perfectly honest with you, I am not completely au fait with the sort of legal standings mm-hmm. of that sort of thing. Um, if they specifically want to make another movie using that plot, I think they have to option that book separately. But I might be wrong. Please don't but, quote me on that. 
and you know throw it back in my face in two years uh, time it's all right no on one social media no one on here is listening so i i, I, I wouldn't yeah, worry too much I, so i think but at the same time that there's nothing stopping them whatsoever from making sequels that have nothing to do with that was going to be my sequels ne- that was going to be my next yeah. question because i was also why what made you do a prequel because i my stated aim with I've said that several times now, haven't I? But it's true. My stated aim with The Coldest City was to do a trilogy of books. It was to be the first in a trilogy of books, all set in Berlin, Mm -hmm. or in and around Berlin, I should say, during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Well, officially, the Cold War ended when the Berlin Wall came down, or very, very soon afterwards. The Iron Curtain fell pretty quickly after the Berlin Wall came down. So so I haven't got a lot of wiggle room. (laughs) I kind of painted myself into a corner. Um... But that said, I always uh, the second book, the, the Winter, was always going to be a book about David Percival, which is the character James McAvoy plays in the movie. Yeah. Uh, it was always going to be a story about his earlier life in Berlin, if you like, if you will. And then the third book is another prequel, but it takes place after the Coldest Winter, and that will actually focus on Lorraine, right. the main character of Coldest City. Uh, but it will still be a prequel. It will take place yeah. before. The events of the coldest city um and i just i've literally been working on that the last couple of weeks i've just got the story and plot of that finalized now so i will start scripting that yeah soon you know i, I don't know exactly <laughs> when but soon but the coldest winter is um <coughs> it's been quite well received which is nice uh, i think a lot of people i loved just, it i have to say thank you and i'm not just saying that because you're sitting opposite me i i actually did i think a lot of people were surprised that it didn't feature lorraine because of course Coldest Winter, for people who don't know, only came out last December. Mm. Uh, it had quite a long development period. Um, and frankly, for most of that development period, although we knew that Coldest City had been optioned, we had no idea whether it would actually get made. You know, yeah. that, That's the reality of Hollywood. Is things get optioned all the time and then nothing happens. And I've been down that road many, many times myself. And so you develop this kind of, almost a cynicism, not quite a cynicism, but you, you develop a kind of, well, look, that thing's happening over there and I'm just going to ignore it and get on with my life and my work because there's no point obsessing yeah. over it. I have no control over it whatsoever. So I'm just going to get on with what I can control, which in my case, obviously, is writing these graphic novels. So <laughs> Goldest Winter came out, you know, 12 months, not 12 months, no, but six months or so after the movie had, like, finished filming, for heaven's sake. But by then, of course, mm-hmm. we were already locked in. It's yeah. like, no, no, this is the second book. It's too late to change it now. So everybody was a bit surprised, I think. But that is why it doesn't feature Lorraine's character at all. Uh, commercial suicide. <laughs> um, but there you go. That's that's my think career. Of it, think of it as artistic integrity it rather, rather than commercial suicide. <laughs> that's my career in a nutshell, really. <laughs> um, but the third book, and now, of course, everybody thinks that I'm cashing in when I say that the third book is going to be all about Lorraine. Oh, of course. It, but it always was. That was always the plan. Uh, it will... And I don't want to get too deep in spoiler territory here, um, so I'm not gonna. I'm not prepared to say much about it. What I will say is that the third book tells us how Lorraine came to be in the situation she finds herself in in the coldest city in the first book. Right. Mm. I'm wording that very carefully because I don't want to give anything <laughs> away if you haven't read the coldest city. But yes, so it will be all about her. And again, that was always the plan. But <sighs> okay, so. Um, I read in previews because I'm a professional comics retailer and I, I occasionally <laughs> do look at previews. So I know that we can talk about this, or I presume we can talk about this, uh, Codename Babushka. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, go it's, com- it's coming back. Yes. 
it, well, it was always meant to come back. The, the plan with Codename Babushka was always that we would do a series of miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why the first miniseries had that subtitle, The Conclave of Death. Um, for those who don't know, Codename Babushka is another female spy story that I do, but it's contemporary and it's much more pulpy. It is much more a James Bond. Lots of gadgets and things blowing up and you know, loads of action and high kicks. And uh, it's, it's very deliberately sort of pulpy and a bit lighthearted in places. You know, it's serious in some places as well, but mostly it's just a good time. That's why the first one had that subtitle, The Conclave of Death, mm-hmm. because it was always meant to be a series of missions, mm-hmm. essentially. That was her first mission. And so mission two is called Ghost Station Zero. And what we're doing is we're following the criminal model, Ed Brubaker and mm-hmm. Sean Phillips' criminal, where that's the title of the book. The title of the book is Ghost Station Zero. And then underneath it says, you know, a codename Babushka mission. Uh, so if you're looking for it, look for Ghost Station Zero. That comes out, the first issue goes on sale the week after Atomic Blonde is released in the theatres in America. Oh, nice. What a coincidence. Good, good timing. <laughs> yeah, not, a, not a coincidence at all. I was going to say, it's fantastic when things yeah. like that work out, isn't, isn't it? it just, yeah, no, not a coincidence. Because <laughs> uh, again, I'm not that stupid. Uh, so, yeah, that will be coming out in August. That is in previews now. The uh, You can still pre-order the first issue. Pre-orders are open until, I think, 10th of July for the first issue. Yeah, please feel free to email info at destinationvenus.co.uk and we'll be happy to sort that out for you, dear listener. Absolutely. Um, Other comic shops are available. <laughs> and the first, uh, we also, one of the things we do with Codename Babushka is every issue has an alternate, a variant cover, which is a pin-up by a female artist. Mm-hmm. Um, for those, of, uh, again, for those who don't know, Codename Babushka is, uh, I write it, and then it is d- penciled, inked, and coloured by Shari Chunghama, who is the colourist on my book, The Fuse, that I did with Justin Greenwood. Uh, mm-hmm. She's also an artist in her own right. And so she does all of the art on Codename Babushka and does the, the A covers, as we call them. And then the B covers are all by different female artists. Uh, so, like, the very first issue, we had Tula Lote did our mm-hmm. variant cover. Uh, and then we also, who else did we have in that story arc? Um, we had... I'm completely blanking now <laughs> on people. Oh, uh, Lili Dolduka, for example. Um, and... Uh, my mind's gone to mush. I can't remember, but yeah, it's a, been a long day. A rotating cast of yeah, and they're all like beautiful pin-up covers by uh, these film artists. So the first issue of Ghost Station Zero has a B cover by Becky Cloonan. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, I've known Becky for many, many years, but we've never had the chance to work together. And so I actually asked her to do a cover for the first Codename Babushka, but she was too mm-hmm. busy, and she said, "Come back to me when you do another." So, so I did. And yes, so she is the B cover for issue one of this new series. The issue two, the B cover is by Megan Levens, you know, famed Star Trek and Buffy artist. And uh, yeah. what did she do? What was the book she did? Only Angel City recently. Oh, that was her. Right. Yeah, yeah. Ah. yeah. She's, she's brilliant. Megan and I are hoping to do a book at some point in the relatively near future together. I think she's a fantastic. Issue three, which hasn't been solicited yet, I don't think. Um, I think that comes out. That's in the next issue of previews. Uh, yes, it, I think it will be right. Yeah. And the B cover for that is by uh, Robin Holtzman, who won't be familiar to most people. I don't think she does a web 
comic called uh, Curia Regis, uh, which there is now a collected print edition of as well. I was going to say, it's ringing a bell. Yeah. She, I don't uh, think I've read, I haven't read it. She released the print version last year, I think. It's, she's, an, again, an excellent artist, and she's done this wonderful cover for us. And then the B cover for issue four, uh, the final issue of this mission, is by my old friend Emma Vicelli, who does the Alex Ryder graphic novels with me now. Yeah. Um, so uh, so it's all very incestuous <laughs> but they're, they're all wonderful alternate covers and then as I say our A covers are beautiful moody painted like colour you know digitally painted pieces by mm-hmm. uh, Shari as well so you know the art in it is all wonderful and yeah as I say it's this just pulpy spy Bond style book Ghost Station Zero is uh, the ghost stations are abandoned Soviet Cold War bases that some people aren't even sure exists they kind of fallen into myth and an operative for E.ON, the um, not coincidentally named organisation that Babushka has been blackmailed into working for. Uh, and an op- one of their operatives goes missing in the Swiss Alps on the trail of one of these ghost stations and they send her in to find out what's going on and it rapidly, be- you know, things start blowing up everywhere. Uh, it goes from Switzerland to Canada to China to Denmark to all, you know, proper globe-trotting thing. And everywhere she goes, things blow up. It's great. <laughs> That's perfect. So, I'd like to take you back now. Yeah, insert timey-wimey yep. sound effect. I might actually do that. I I, <laughs> I, I may search the web for a suitably timey-wimey sound or, effect. Or the, the TARDIS sound effect. I might just use that. Just back to I mean, I've... I, I, I would be lying if I said we were great friends and bosom buddies, but we have known of each other for a long oh, time. Uh, yes, yes. Um, I'm trying to think. Am I right in thinking that we originally first came across each other on the Comics International Yahoo group? Oh, wow, yes. That is entirely possible. In fact, before it was a Yahoo group, I think. Oh, you're right, yeah, back when it was just a mailing list. Yeah, yeah. That is entirely possible, yes. Uh, although I think, didn't you know my partner, Marcia? I knew Marcia. I knew Marcia through um, my best mate Andrea, who, um, of course, and through was, sequential tart was writing and, for, yeah. for sequential tart, which um, of which Marcia was a co-founder, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. again, it's all very incestuous. <laughs> <laughs> well, comics is a remarkably small world. It's a very small world, yes. Because um, I, I think I just, I think I knew you before I started writing for Silver Bullet. Uh, maybe, but it was around that time. So, and that's how that's how I met various people in the thing because yeah. I remember back in, back in the day the thing that stood out to me for all your email God, people communicating using email using email I know <laughs> what a concept um, your email your sign off um, was a little thing for Frightening Curves oh yes my first book your first book which I have never read <laughs> and it's kind of bugged me don't because... worry you're far from alone <laughs> <laughs> no but it's kind of bugged me because that little Frightening curve. The center cannot hold. That's it. Thing. Yeah. I was. I was immediately attracted to it, and then I met you physically in like in real life for the first time in Bristol. In Bristol, yeah. must have been ninety nine. Sounds right. And you'd sold out. Oh, you mean sold out? Of yeah, you'd curves. sold out of frightening curves, and I've never seen a copy ever. <laughs> um, I only have. I think I have two copies myself at home because I have a you know a library an archive. Of Right, yeah, of one of everything that I've published. And then I have a few spares of a few things. Uh, and I think I have two copies of Frightening Curves at home. But yeah, only two myself. Mm. Um, uh, you can you can find them secondhand. A friend of mine in the States actually bought one on eBay like six months ago. 
Uh, yeah, I shall, I shall redouble my efforts. You can find them second hand, yeah. Um, but good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean the reason I mention that is um, one of the questions I've been at because obviously people come in the shop. Um, there are many people who, independently of me recommending it, um, are fans of your work. Oh, that's nice. Uh, you, you have a, a few fans around here, and because they know I know you, because I'm a terrible name dropper. <laughs> Clang. Uh, and when people have gone, oh, this is a new Anthony Johnson. I, said, I know him. <laughs> they ask me things like, what's his? You know, how did he get into this? And you know, what? What's, what's he doing living in Lancashire? Yeah, yeah. And it's, <laughs> I get that one a lot. <laughs> and and so, so, what was your path into? this wow um well i mean ultimately okay it starts with a love of comics mm-hmm. uh, and i think that's true of like to you and i because we grew up with a love of comics it doesn't seem at all strange um i mean how old were you when you started reading actually i was a, i was a latecomer oh really um, how late 16 oh that's still not that late no i'm talking yeah. about like compared to people who may who are in their like twenties or thirties and have never ah been, right 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 yeah, yeah. It, as long I think as long as you start before you're twenty you're fine mm. if you try to start after that a lot of people have difficulty literally just reading comics understanding how they work you know how to decode the visual grammar of comics that's true I started when I was four <laughs> um, and I think that's true of a lot of comic creators we grew up it's one of those things where you grow up with a love of it. And if you're then so inclined to be a creator of some kind, you know, you will often, there's a good chance that you'll gravitate towards comics. But very few people gravitate towards comics who didn't grow up reading them as a creator. There mm-hmm. are some, no question, there are some, but the majority of comic creators are people who grew up loving the form. Mm-hmm. So for me, it started with, my, one of my earliest memories is uh, I was four years old, sat it sitting on my father's lap, as he read me a copy of the Beano, uh, which, in case people don't know, is a now defunct, long gone uh, British children's comic. And by that, I don't mean children's as in. No, the Beano's still around. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. I thought it was only online now. No, Dandy's only online. Oh, okay. Sorry. The Beano's the Beano's oh. still around. We we apologise to the citizens of Dundee. <laughs> yes, my apologies. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I read the Beano and the Dandy for years as a kid. I loved them. Um, but when I say kids again you know with the way modern comics are i don't mean suitable for all ages in the way that say a superman comic is i mean literally yeah, this is aimed at young children yeah. yeah preschoolers yeah so i was four years old and my father read the comic to me and part of the reason i remember it is i remember the center spread which was in color because the rest of the comic was black and white uh being the bastard kid and i remember him reading that to me and so i just grew up reading comics as well as other things you know i've always Mm -hmm. just been a voracious reader of all manner of goblin uh and comics is one of those things so it was never it was never anything that i had to sort of fight for or that was presented as something odd or you know lesser in any way so i grew up reading comics voraciously along with mostly sci-fi fantasy and world war ii novels uh and shark hunt like i said i was kind of voracious (laughs) and as i grew up i started to make my own stories and some of them were i would doodle and make my own comic stories some of them weren't some of them i would you know bang out an old manual typewriter and that just kind of i i've always made up my own stories and comics has always been a part of that mix so that's the kind of background and then getting into it 
properly was uh, I, I've told this story a few times, but I I had kind of got out of comics for a while actually. I think we all do. Right, I hit that period in my sort of early to mid twenties where a lot of the series that I was reading had finished, uh, such as Sandman, uh, which I absolutely loved, but you know had finished, and I looked around and. At first blush, didn't see an awful lot that appealed to me. And so I just kind of fell out of the habit. The 90s was a relatively barren mm, time. Yeah, mid-90s, yeah. Um, the only thing I was doing was every year I would pop into Nostalgia on Comics in Birmingham, uh, which was my local back then because I grew up in Birmingham, um, uh, and look for the latest Cerebus phone book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, once a year I would do that, basically, and if there was a new one out, I'd buy it. That was the extent of my comics habit so to speak and then i moved away for work i went down to bath i worked for future publishing for a while and uh a colleague there chris mitchell who has been on my own podcast a couple of times uh he ran a literary webzine back when literary webzines were still quite novel in fact, actually, probably quite novel now as well. I think, <laughs> yes, I think that might be novel again. Yeah, yeah, that's a market that sort of expanded <laughs> and then imploded pretty quickly. Um, uh, and so he was on the Titan Books mailing list. And so he got sent all of their graphic novels, um, what have you. And that included, and so he, you know, we chatted and he knew that I was a bit into comics and what have you. And he would occasionally give them to me to review. And then a copy of Writers on Comics Scriptwriting turned up an old guy who's like 20 years old now type original book consisting of interviews with comics writers or mostly writers i think there are oh no no, that's right there's a few writer artists people like todd mcfarlane yeah in there but they are all people who write and then there's also there is also another book which is uh, artists uh and that includes some artists who write but again like dave gibbons but they're all artists but this mm-hmm. one was the first one was all writers and i recognized a few names in it not many because I was never much of an American comics reader. I always read more of the you know, the British comics. I grew up reading mm-hmm. 2000 AD. Scream, The Relaunched Eagle, that sort of thing. And for American comics, I just I was never that interested in superheroes. But I did read some of the Vertigo books, like Sandman. And I recognised a few names in this book, like Garth Ennis and Grant Morrison. And so I thought, oh, okay, I'll give that a read. I think I read the entire book overnight. Uh, you know, up until 3am in the morning, Mm -hmm. just absolutely loving it, and discovered a lot of writers that I literally had never read anything by, most of them because they were American and worked in the American market, but it just kind of made me curious again. And one of the people interviewed in that book was a certain writer called Warren Ellis, talking a lot about his new book, Transmetropolitan, and it sounded really interesting to me, so I went down to... That week, the very next weekend, I went to the Bristol Forbidden Planet and bought the first trade paperback of Transmetropolitan. Got home, read it in one evening, caught the bus back the next day (laughs) and bought every other volume of Transmetropolitan that they had, which I think at the time was up to like maybe four volumes or something. And then, and basically then started reading Preacher and The Invisibles and because I I knew I loved Grant and Garth's work anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, Somehow I had missed Preacher and The Invisibles being launched, I think because I'd been out of the scene for a while. And so that was my entry back into comics. And then, and I am getting to a point here, I promise. And then, (laughs) as a result of that, I started looking around at other stuff. And I read, I eventually found Oni Press Mm -hmm. and some of their stuff, like the Jane Silent Bob comics uh, by Duncan Figredo, which I love, or rather he drew them. I think Kevin Smith did actually write them, which I loved. Um, And Girl Scouts, Jim Marfood's um, book, stuff like that. And then I found Whiteout by Greg Ruckett and Steve Lieber. And Whiteout just 
blew me away because it was... See, up until this point, I'd just been reading. I was actually trying to write a novel at the time, and I'd just been reading the comics, really enjoying them, never ha hadn't really given it any thoughts at all. And then I read Whiteout, and I had never read a comic like it before. I had never read a comic that took a bona fide murder mystery whodunit and treated it seriously and respectfully as if it was a prose novel. Now, I'm not saying that those books maybe didn't exist, but I had never read them. I had never seen them. It was the first time I'd seen anything like this. And it just blew me away because that was the kind of story that I like writing. As the last 20 years, I think, has kind of shown. I, yeah, I, I, I think we can see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, that's my kind of thing. Um, and so I was just kind of... That just, like I said, blew me away. My mind was reeling. And that made me think, oh... There is a market for the sort of stories that I want to tell in comic form. And there is a publisher out there who will publish those kinds of stories as well. And they are called Only Press. And so that's how I ended up deciding, okay, I'm going to start taking this comics stuff seriously. And actually really knuckled down and got to work on, you know, learning how to write comics properly. And learning how to write properly, <laughs> frankly. Uh, and sending loads of submissions to various people, including Oni, and I was very fortunate that, that Oni were. I think my third book was with Oni, and that was Three Days in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so I did Frightening Curves and Rosemary's Backpack, both with Cyberosia Publishing, which was Scott Brown's. Oh, Rosemary's Backpack. Yeah. God, I love that book. Scott Brown's independent publishing company. After I'd done a few web comics and stuff by then as well, including After Days of Passion, which was a one of the first HTML-driven web comics where the story had no end uh, and you could read it in any order and you sort of click various bits of the picture and it would take you to different scenes and you might loop back around and see the same scene twice but now it's got a different context because you've read something else in between and, mm -hmm. and that was with Ben Templesmith that was the first thing I ever did with Ben yeah. that was actually featured in the digital section of the British Library's Comics Unmasked exhibition last year which I was floored by I was honoured uh, by to see that there um, or to be asked, you know, if, if it could be included. Um, so I've done a few things like that. And then, yeah, Frightening Curves, which is an illustrated prose novel. It's not really a graphic novel. Uh, that was me and Aman Chowdhury, who did these beautiful full-page digital paintings to go with the story. I remember seeing some of the artwork online at the time. I, I love it. I mean, Aman and I are still in touch. He's a great guy, but he's also sort of a wonderful artist. So that was an illustrated prose novel. And then Rosemary's Backpack was actually technically my first comic, because that was my first print. Mm -hmm. because that was a proper graphic novel with Drew Gilbert uh, drawing. So I'd gone from adult contemporary horror, postmodern horror, to uh, kids, an unabashedly kids adventure book with, like, you know, giant robots and a talking backpack. <laughs> yeah, which was huge. I, I, I remember actually getting you to, to autograph me a couple of copies of that. Because it was the was first... York? It was the first comic I... Uh, I know, actually, I posted them to you. Oh, wow. Because uh, it was the first comic I'd ever given away as a prize at oh, school. Oh, right, wow. Um, yeah, it's one of my... I can say it because you won't be listening. <laughs> um, one of my very favourite students ever. Um, not that I ever had favourites, but, you know. Of course. Uh, one of the favourites I didn't have wrote me... Uh, I was trying to start a comic at school. And right, right. Uh, she wrote an absolutely fantastic strip. And her prize... For submitting the best strip was a copy of Rosemary's Backpack. Oh wow, excellent! See, these days you'd give her a copy of like Sisters or Smile or something, one of Rainer's books. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, but well, I'm I'm honoured. Um, but yeah, so I went from postmodern horror to kids' adventure to 
a romantic comedy. Yeah. Um, and this, again, kind of set the template for my career, which has been a bit genre hopping. Anyway, so that's how I ended up at Only Press. That's how I ended up doing Wasteland at Only Press. Uh, because, again, who else was going to publish that book? Pretty much nobody. It was either them or Vertigo. And mm. Vertigo weren't, you know, I wasn't a big enough name to merit. You, yeah, time, you, you needed to be Vertigo. bigger to be get, to get yeah. into Vertigo back then. Uh, they're different now, you know, I know that they're, especially with Jamie Rich, haha, ironically, now being at Vertigo, you know, he's seeking out new writers and stuff, things have changed. But at the time, if you weren't a name, basically, if you weren't a big name, you, you weren't know, getting in. You weren't getting in. Uh, and so, yeah, who else was going to publish that book? And so only, bless them, published Wasteland. And that's why I came to do Coldest City with them. And, you know, we've had a long relationship ever since. Not that they're the only people I publish with, but they have been one of my main publishers. And it all you can blame it all on Greg Rocker and Whiteout. And Greg and I are now... I, I met Greg not long after I got into the business, and we've, we've been friends ever since. And he knows I blame him for this, and he'll shrug it off. And you know, But it is absolutely true that if I hadn't read Whiteout, I may never have decided to take creating comics seriously. Isn't that... It's, it's astonishing to think of the, 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 the little things. Oh, yeah, yeah. The change... change Everything. The chain of events. And if you remove one of them, you think, wow, things could have been completely different. Mm. Yeah, it is amazing. Meeting yeah. people, reading a book, being, well, you know, the whole being in the right place at the right time thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, going back to Coldest City, if I hadn't, the whole reason that I wrote Coldest City was because I had, uh, I wrote an arc of Greg Rucker's Queen and Country series. Um, of course you'd have forgotten that. Yeah, Queen and Country Declassified, Volume 3, I think it was ours. Uh, which was actually the first book I did with Chris Mitt. And it was because we worked well together on that that mm -hmm. we went ahead and did Wasteland. Um, it's all connected. I had such a great time writing that Queen and Country Declassified story. Such a, I had such fun, literally fun writing it. I thought, oh, wow, yeah, this is a genre I really want to do more in. I, I should do something of my own in this genre. And I had I reached a period where I had been doing a lot of work for other people. Apart from Wasteland, I'd been doing stuff like video games and uh, commissioned comics and adaptations and stuff, which is all great and I have no regrets. You know, it's all, I'm all very proud of that work, but I've always been driven by writing my own things, you know, by my own creator-owned books. And I hadn't done one for a while apart from Wasteland, which was sort of chugging along at the time. So, so I reached a point where I said, I'm going to take, I'm going to finish out all the commitments I have, and then I'm just going to take a couple of months to write graphic novel, a, you know, some kind of spy thriller graphic novel, because like I say, I had such fun writing Queen and Country, mm -hmm. uh, for me, a book that is purely for me, and I'm not going to think about its commercial viability. I'm not going to think about who might publish it or who might draw it. I'm just going to write a story purely for me, that I would want to read. I was going to say, writing the story that you want to read. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, that's always guided me. In my creator-owned books, I always, I am writing a book that I would want to read, always. So so that was what I did in the summer of 2008, I think it was. Uh, I spent two months, I sat down, and I wrote The Coldest City. And then I thought, okay, this is pretty good. I'm actually quite happy with this, which, believe me, is <laughs> more rare than you might think. I finished it and thought, yeah, I'm quite happy with this. Uh, who in the hell's going to publish this? Nobody. But fortunately, you know, I one of the people I showed it to was Oni, and they they said yes, they would publish it in the format that I wanted it to be published. I wanted it to be a hardback original. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to feel like a novel. You know, yeah. feel like a spy thriller novel that you might see on anybody's bookshelf. To their credit, you know, they they said yes, absolutely, we will do that. We'll do it that way, uh, and that's 
that's why the book is in the format it is. Yeah, it was a beautiful presentation. It, it is, yeah. I mean, beautifully designed by Keith Wood as well. Uh, yeah, so, you know, very, very happy with that. But that's how that book came about. It was purely just me going a bit stir-crazy and wanting to do a book for me. And so you can see how that's part of this chain of events. If I hadn't done that, uh, it wouldn't have been published when it was. And at that point, you know, if it might have been published sooner or later or not at all, Charlie's Theron might never have seen it or people might never have seen it in any case. And so, yeah, it's this, you know, this chain of events that all leads here. You remove one little link and suddenly you're into a multiverse because things could be completely different. It is kind of nuts. But, you know, that's life. <laughs> you touched briefly, very, very briefly, a few minutes ago on Fuse. Yes. Now, I have to ask you a couple of questions about Fuse because uh, I've been told to by, by a, a customer who is... A massive fan of Fuse. First of all, well, the good news is, yes, there will be more. Oh, goodness, <laughs> because the first thing I it, knew that was going to be the, the first, first thing. The first thing I had to say was, uh, he's really cross. <laughs> he's really cross yeah. at that finish. No, we it, we put it on hiatus because uh, we always said we would do four volumes of the Fuse, and then we'd assess mm-hmm. where we were. So we did that. We did our four volumes because we knew that's how long it would take to do the the overall the overarching story arc of Ralph's story basically uh so we did that and then we did reassess and we by that point we had been working on it continually for just over three years which is a long time to spend on a book it is yeah yeah um frankly most people who take on a marvel book these days don't make it to three years before they move off to another book you know Mm. so that's a long time to spend on a book and we wanted to do other things uh you know we love the book justin and i are still great friends and we love working together but he wanted to go off, I mean, he, he's announced that, so I can mention it, but he wanted to go off and do a historical graphic novel about Alexander Hamilton. Kind of good timing. Um, Again, I, <laughs> yeah. I, how, how these things work out like this is... Uh... <laughs> uh, and it's, I've read it as well. I read a PDF, uh, you know, advanced reading copy a while ago, uh, and gave them a blurb. It's a good book. He wanted to do that. I wanted to do a couple of other things. And also, by this point, Atomic Blonde was starting to happen. Mm. So my time was being taken up with, you know, other stuff. Um so we decided, and you know, let's be honest, The Fuse was never a blockbuster, a chart-busting book sales-wise. You know, we, we, we never lit up the sales charts with it. So it was also kind of, okay, you know, let's, let's just pause for a moment. We've done the four volumes we said we would. So let's pause, we'll do some other things, and then we'll come back and we'll do some more stories. We already have plans for book five. Justin and I have already discussed it. We already know roughly what it's going to be about not the details i haven't mm. sat down and done it but we know what it's going to be about it's going to be set on mars there's a clue for you um uh it's you know we know roughly what we want to do with it and how we want to approach it and when, after we do that we'll probably do a volume six we want to in an ideal world we would like the fuse to be a book that we can come back to once every two years maybe and mm-hmm. do a mystery do a story arc you know, because each of these, as any regular reader knows, the fuse is a, a it's cops in space. It's a murder mystery set on a space station, and each story arc is a case. It yeah. is a murder to be solved. And so it would be really nice if we could come back once every couple of years and do a case. You know, almost like releasing a new TV movie or something. Yeah. Um, and that's certainly the plan for. That's what we'll do for volume five, and then, you know, we maybe we'll do that for volume six as well. It's not. It's absolutely not cancelled. You know, we do want to and intend to come back and do more. It's just a question of, as I said, we didn't want to burn out. Mm. That's the thing, you know, because that's a real thing. You know, you work on a book for too long and you can easily 
just kind of get sick of it. Find so, yourself repeating yourself. Yeah, and, yeah. So, so we didn't want to burn out. We didn't want to get sick of it because we love the book so much. And so, yeah, you know, and as I say, Justin and I enjoy working together a lot as well. You know, we have a mm-hmm. good team there. Myself, Justin, Shari, uh, Ryan Ferrier on letters. It's a good, solid team. We, you know, we, we're all in sync. We work well together. It's a good, well-oiled machine. So, yeah, we absolutely want to do more. It's just a question of when, finding the right time. Yeah. No, it's good because it, The Fuse is, an in, from my point of view as a retailer, The Fuse is a really interesting book. Because, as you say, it's not the biggest seller. Although I am very pleased to be able to tell you that it outsells Captain America in this shop. Wow! Um, <laughs> but it, the, it, it has an incredibly devoted readership. Uh, the, the people who are reading it, Love it. Absolutely love it. To be honest, that's kind of my readership in a nutshell. That's, you know, I've re- it's taken me a few years to sort of realise that and come to that, you know, sort of aware that self-awareness. Mm. But that appears to be most of my readers. I, and I, I mean, I think this is good. You know, I have a sort of core loyal readership who clearly have the same sort of tastes, which are a bit eclectic, as I do. And, you know and or just like the way I write things. And so I, I know there is a reliable core readership of people out there, bless them, who will read pretty much anything I do. They're not, it's not like there are a hundred thousand of them. I wish there were, <laughs> you know. Um, it's only a few thousand. It's a relatively small number compared to, you know, big blockbusting books like Wicked and Divine or something. But it's my core readership. And I, I you know, yeah. say, I thank them every day because I know I can rely on that core readership to support pretty much whatever I write. Uh, you know, they trust me not to do crap. <laughs> and in return, you know, I hope that they will, tr- you know, repay that trust by uh, by buying the books. And that does seem to be the case, yeah. It's, uh, I think it is, actually, your... Is eclecticism a word? I think that's a word, yeah. Um, it is now. Yeah, it is. We've, we've just said it. <laughs> uh, I think it is your eclecticism that attracts because it's not something I'd ever thought of because I sort of knew you I started reading your stuff out of oh it's my mate my right, mate did right. that um, not in a kind of patronising I must support my mate kind of way. much yeah. more in a name dropping <laughs> I can when people say what are you reading oh it's this graphic novel that my mate wrote but, yeah but it's it's not just that you know, I know you're you know you're People can't see, but you're, you know, you're, I know you're smiling. But there is, the thing is, there's, when people ask me what comics I'm reading, quite often it, it's mostly books by my friends. And a lot of that is to do with the fact that I know I can trust them to put everything they have into making a book. Mm. I know that they will not phone it in. They will deliver, you know, uh, and you can you can argue whether or not they succeed or whether or not I succeed on everything that we try to achieve. But there is an effort there to try to achieve it. You know, mm-hmm. like nobody is putting in half measures or, as I say, phoning it in. Everybody is doing their absolute best to deliver the book that, you know, the perfect book that exists in our heads and will never actually exist in the real world but you know that's what we're all trying we're all making concerted efforts to do that and i think that's what comes when you read comics made by whether that's writers artists whatever made by people that you know is there's a certain element of trust that you know that there is genuine sincere effort behind this i think there's i think that yeah i think there's a lot to that as i say I'd, i'd never thought of it before because 
I mean, it, it was inconceivable to me that if you had a book out, I wasn't going to read it. Right. Um, <laughs> regardless but, of what genre it was. That's regardless the other, yeah. of, well, yeah, I'm not all that wedded to genre either, to be honest. No, I, but a lot of readers are. One of my one of my big things, actually, back when I was writing about comics, never quite cracked the writing comics thing. <laughs> uh, I am still working on the comic that I signed a contract to write in 2005. Um, I'm, I'm halfway through issue two. <laughs> Harry Marcos is so pleased. Edit this um, <laughs> But one of the things, one of the things I, that I used to get really irritated about when I was writing about comics was just this idea that comics were one genre. Right. And yeah. I don't know. You've written about this in in the past. You're, uh, and I'm far from alone. I, I occasionally, I occasionally that. share your think you don't like comic mo- comic book movies. Uh, yes, yeah. you do. Yes, you do. I, you I, I, share, that. I, I yeah. share that every time a, yeah. a, a movie that's based on a, a non-superhero comic comes out, pretty much. Because uh, there, there, there has been this idea, and amongst comics fans as well, that you know, comics is about big men in tights. Well, it's Warren's old thing about nurse novels. Uh, back on the WEF, Warren wrote uh, a thing, that's the Warren Ellis Forum, now, again, long defunct, but where a surprising... <laughs> sadly missed. A surprising number of the creators that you now read... Uh, you know, were on that forum as young striplings like myself. And one of the things Warren wrote on there, what well, I say wrote on there, it may have been in one of his early coming alone columns or something, but the point being that he was the first person to make this analogy of, imagine if you walked into a bookstore and 90% of everything was nurse novels, novels about mm. nurses, nurses who solve crimes, nurses who fight evil, nurses who travel to other planets, nurses, nurses, nurses everywhere... What the hell is this madness? What is going on? That's what it's like walking into a comic store. If you haven't grown up reading superhero comics, you're like, what mm. is with all these men in tights? What the hell is going on? Don't you have murder mysteries? Don't you have spy thrillers? Don't you have coming of age books? Don't you have fantasy? Don't you have, uh, you know, literary midlife crisis novels, whatever? Where are all the normal yeah. books? Well, and it's, you know what? It's difficult as a, as a retailer. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. I mean, I'm just, I mean, I... No, I, I sympathise, I realise, because I the audience is so... Consciously, I consciously try to make what I'm stocking as eclectic as I can. But I'm looking over at the rack now, and... Uh, yeah, there's uh, you know, there's aliens up there, there's Britannia, which is a historical mystery. A bit of science fiction there. But, my God, there's a lot of superheroes. Yeah, I mean, you, you know... I'm... And this is a shop that tries not to be all about superheroes. Well, uh, you, so it, you do better it, than most, but yeah, it's still at least 50% superheroes, if not more. Because it has to be, because that's that is what sells. Yeah, you know? it's yeah. Uh, the, and it... this is the reality we all face, and and this is why, as somebody who doesn't focus on superhero books, this is one of the reasons why, you know, my books rarely sort of rarely worry the top of the charts, as it were. <laughs> you know, and, but I understand that I I've I've made my peace with that, you know, because frankly, life is short, and I want to be proud of every book that I write and everything that I write. And that's not to say I couldn't be proud of writing superheroes. I've done superheroes. I was going to say, you've you've written superheroes. I've done and I had a lot of fun with it and I am proud of those books. But part of my experience with that was realising I don't want to do just this. I can't be one of those guys who spends five years writing nothing but superhero books just to raise my profile so that I can Mm. then go to Image and do a fantasy book or whatever. Have you... Have you done a creator-owned superhero? Because I, I know you, no. you, I, I, I know you did Daredevil. Yeah, and, that's not creator. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, I know that. I think Marvel's lawyers might have something to say about that. <laughs> oh man, can you, can you imagine if Daredevil was a creator-owned character? Oh, man, 
Ah, if it was your creator-owned character, that would be... No, I haven't written a creator-owned superhero book, and I've got no real desire, mainly because I have never, and I say this in absolute sincerity, I have never had an idea come to me for a superhero, for a creator-owned superhero book. Never. Do you think that's that's maybe partly because that's not what you grew up reading? I think that's an awful lot to do with it, yes. I'm just... Because I have sci-fi ideas... Yeah. All the time, and I grew up reading 2008. I was going to say, I mean, we, we, yeah. both, we both grew up reading 2008. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I have sci fi ideas all the time, and fancy ideas, and, you know, ideas for uh, stories that could be 2008. Uh, Wasteland, uh, you know, part of Wasteland's DNA is a big homage to 2008 and the, the post apocalyptic stories that yeah. they told. I mean, do you, do you think that maybe might be partly where your your eclectic nature comes from? That, you know, 2008 is a, oh, sure. an anthology book. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure it is, absolutely. But also, as I say, because as a kid I had, I mean, I had genre tastes. There's no denying that. You know, my tastes were fairly genre. I've always loved adventure stories, Mm -hmm. basically. You know, regardless of what genre they're in. But these days, anything that has an adventure-style plot is basically labelled genre fiction. Um, Yeah. But within that, I read sci-fi. I read fantasy. I read detective. I read lots of war books when I was a kid. Loads of war books. My local library had a big World War Two fiction section, and I just devoured the whole thing. Which came first, chicken or the egg? I do not know, but you know, there, there you have it. Yeah, sci-fi, fantasy, detectives, uh, like you know, sci-fi and fantasy mashup stuff, horror. Yeah, you know, anything that had that sort of adventure-style plot, I was into. So I'm sure that has a lot to do with it, and that's in comics as well as novels and movies as well. You know, I've, I've always gravitated towards. The fantastical, like I say, Blade Runner is my favourite movie ever. But my second favourite movie ever is The Usual Suspects, which is you know not sci-fi or fantasy. Actually. Very definitely not sci-fi. Yeah, you know, but I love that for many, many reasons. One of which is just that it's so goddamn clever. <laughs> um, Seven is another of my all-time favourite movies. You know, I've never seen that. Oh, I mean, you know, and you can argue that Seven is kind of verging on a horror movie. It certainly has the sensibilities mm. of a horror movie, um, even though it's not horror in the sense of Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something, you know, um, little much less hostile or something like that. But you, you know, but it has or Nightmare on Elm Street, but it has those sensibilities for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, even within my favourite movies, but I also love, I love Star Wars. My love of Star Wars is well known. Uh, but I also love the Dark Crystal. Uh, it's yeah, all over the place. And, and you, you see, I, I'm sitting here thinking, well, of course you do. They're all brilliant. Well, exactly, but... and that's the thing is, you know, I like to think that I love all these things just because they are great regardless of what genre they're you know it's a bit like my tastes in music you know i gravitate towards mostly heavy metal style you know and gothic industrial sort of style music but i also have an enormous library of classical music i love really great pop music i was so overjoyed to see that barry gibb got a great reception at uh glastonbury because i love the Bee Gees. i absolutely mm. adore the Bee Gees and abba aha are one of my favorite bands you know so there is this again it's like i just i just want it to be good <laughs> I'm not yeah. that bothered Whatever about it is, genre. just be good. Just be good, yeah. You know, and be sincerely good. And that's, you know, that's the other thing. I, I, I like good pop music when you can tell that effort has been put into making it great pop music. So, yeah, that, that's just... I, I'm sure all of that contributes to why I write in so many different genres. Um, because what I care about is a good story, not what genre it's in. If I have an idea for a story and I think that would make a really good story, then I want to write it. 
regardless of what genre it's in. Um, that's just always been the way I am. And frankly, I might be more commercially successful if that wasn't the case. You know, if I was willing to be the horror guy or the sci-fi guy or whatever, you know, maybe I would have sold more books. Uh, I don't know. But I also would be bored. Well, yeah. And there'd be an awful lot of stuff that currently exists that's, that's, that's brilliant that wouldn't exist. Well... Thank you very much. So, you know, it's... But yeah, it's, you know, I, I have to keep myself interested and sleep at night. Uh, and part of that is knowing that I am doing the best job I can on whatever I happen to be doing at that time. Is just making sure that I'm making the best, writing the best story I can, regardless of what it is. And not wasting my time. Mm. You know? Um, and this is the goth in me, I suppose. But like I say, you know, <laughs> life is short. And there are a lot of books that I still want to write. And I would like... And so, you know, I don't have time to write things that I don't want to write. You know? Yeah. I don't have time to work on things that don't interest me. Because, frankly, I've already got a backlog of... I mean, and every writer will tell you this. You know, I've got a thousand story fragment ideas sitting around on my hard drive waiting to see whether or not they will be make good stories. And the only way you find that out is to devote some time to them and actually work on them and, you know, think, okay, how can this be a story? And you can't do that if your time is spent working on things that you're not actually enjoying. Now, look, I mean, I'm fortunate in that I can afford to do this. You know, my books sell well enough and I do the video game writing as well that, you know, I'm in a very fortunate position where I can afford to say no to people like Marvel. Mm -hmm. Not everybody can. You know, and I, I, I have no, I bear no ill will or grudge to people who literally, because I, you know, 20 years ago, that was me. Yeah, sure. Ta I mean, taking every job I could find. The, yeah. I mean, you, in order to be able to be highfalutin and say, I'm not going right. to do this, you had to be able to afford to not need the money to have to do that. You basically have to spend the years but, working in the trenches to get to the position where you can do it. I do know? think there's a little bit more to it than that, though. Um, it's not just financial. I wouldn't have. I know it's not just because no. no. Because look, I'm not. I'm, I, I, I know. I'm not living in a mansion and driving around in a Rolls Royce. You know, well, no, I, I still have to pay my bills. I know that. <laughs> I know that. Um, I mean, if I was in your position as somebody who was, you know, making a living writing, um, which I so envy. You know, I'm, I'm a. I don't call myself an aspiring writer anymore. I'm a wannabe writer. I'm not. I'm not nearly good enough. My ideas aren't nearly good enough, and I don't have the discipline. Semant this is semantics. This is. <laughs> this is now well known. But I think if Marvel were to come to me, even if I was making making a living writing, if Marvel were to come to me and say, Reggie, we'd really like it if you could do as a Spider-Man miniseries, I would say, yeah. Right, yeah, where do I because, sign? Yeah. Because, <laughs> because, because uh, it's Spider-Man. Spider yeah. In fact, it's not even that. If they, say, if they came to me and said, what's the worst... If they came to me and said, we'd like you to do a Fool Killer miniseries, I'd still say yes. <laughs> I've got no respect for the character. I think it's a ridiculous concept. But it's Marvel! Right. And I don't think... Marvel or DC, if they came to me and said that, I don't think I would have the discipline to be able to say, no, I don't have an idea for that. I don't... Right. Well, it's not just discipline. I mean, part of it is... Yeah, part of it is whether or not... Because while I was working at Marvel, I did turn down... I mean, this is basically why I stopped working for them. Because I turned down a few too many books that they offered me and so they stopped calling <laughs> yeah. and I was like yeah okay I'm getting out of this um, 
because you know they kept offering me books that I just didn't want to do and mm. and I would say that I would say yeah no that's that's not a book for me and and I could tell you know at the other end of the line there was an element of disbelief of like how can you possibly not want to write flagman right or, you know yeah. well or more kind of like what does that matter but to me it matters so there is an element of that there's also an element of there are many people out there as you've just said there are many people out there who really do want to write those books you know, there are people out there who really, really want to write a flagman book or yeah. whatever. And to be fair, and those are the people who should be writing those books. Exactly. I would rather that if they if they are so keen to do that book, you know, like, oh my God, I've got all these ideas for flagman stories or whatever. Dude, you go and do it. You are the guy to write that book. You know, yeah. or, the, or the woman and or the non-gender specific person. <laughs> you are the person to write that book. If it was Flagman, it would definitely be a dude. Well, all right. (laughs) Probably. But I'm just saying, you know, you're the person to go and write the book. Please have at it and knock yourself out because I could do it. This is the thing. I'm sure I could write a perfectly passable Spider-Man story. But would it be Passion Project? No. No, it'd it'd be a job. It'd be a gig. And I wouldn't turn it down necessarily, you know, if it was the right gig. But I would have to think, okay, have I got a story I can tell here? Yeah. Because I'm not brimming with ideas for Batman or Spider-Man or Superman already. The other reason why I think that's a good attitude to have, again, from a fan point of view, you can tell as a reader, as a fan, as, as a... I love Batman, okay? I, I'm all about Batman. I have been since 1989. Um, I've bought everything that's had Batman in it since 1989, wow. when I first bought it. I've got some crap on my shelves. <laughs> and that's my point, I love Batman. Absolutely love him. And it shows when you've got a writer, or an artist actually, but who took the job because it was a chance to get a Batman credit. It was a chance to be able to say, I've written Batman. Yeah, yeah. Don't, hey, don't knock it. You know, being able to put, I have written Batman on your CD. And, oh, and, say, and I get that. That's a powerful line to have. I get that. But <laughs> as, as the guy who's forking out his, his 399 on the comic, and as the guy who bloody loves Batman, I'm kind of offended. Right, when, when people when, yeah. when people who clearly don't care about the character write him badly, and from your perspective, though, you know you've got to remember one man's treasure is another man's trash. And I, I, that, I, I except as a fan, I reserve the right to say that I'm always right. And anyone who disagrees well, with me is wrong. Yes, but you know, I'm just saying. But so I've been in Whovian fandom for a very long oh, time, right. and that's how that works. <laughs> but you understand what I mean? Stepping I'm back, sure you've got. You know, you've got. To... There may be some people who who love. I'm and, not. I'm not going to name any. Okay, here's here's the thing that the thing that I know 100 percent from having you know done a couple of years working for Marvel. Sometimes. Those books are not because those people don't love Batman. They are because they are tired, overworked, or frankly sometimes being made to write a story that editorial wants them to write, even well, though yeah. you know they had actually they think they have a better idea themselves, or they're not allowed to write the story that they want to do because it's got to fit in with a crossover or an editorial mandate or a direction or whatever. Don't even get me started on all crossovers. These, all these things are the reality of working in corporate-owned comics, you know. Yeah. And I'm not assigning a value judgment to that at all. You know, you can say it's good, bad, whatever, but it's the reality. And, you know, it's one more reason why, like I say, never say never. You know, I if, if Marvel or DC or whoever came to me with the right offer for the right book, of course I wouldn't just immediately slam the phone but that background makes it less attractive exactly but but having seen how the sausage gets made and knowing 
how these things work. You know, mm. I would certainly want to write a book that wasn't editorially mandated, you know, yeah. that was my story. The books I'm proudest of at Marvel are the Shadowland spin-off Blood on the Streets mm-hmm. and the Spider Island spin-off Shang-Chi, uh, the Master of Kung Fu. That was great. Uh, thank you. Both of which were basically, we need a story with these characters in it that ties into this uh, event. Beyond that, do whatever the hell you want. That, that's my perfect gig. That's, in, you know, within the world of corporate comics, that is my perfect mm. gig. Okay, give me a character. I don't care who it is. I'll find something interesting about them that I can work with. I did the shroud, for heaven's sake, in Blood on the Streets, you know. Um, Paladin, Christ. So <laughs> give me a character. Uh, and, you know, okay, you've got to have them tie into this event in some way. But beyond that, knock yourself out. And I'll go, yes. And so Blood on the Streets is basically a murder mystery. It's a detective-style murder mystery book. And the Shang-Chi, Spider-Man, the Shang-Chi Master of Kung Fu is just an excuse to have lots and lots of Kung Fu action uh, that, like... Kind of ties Which is in, why it was great. Right, kind of ties into Spider Island in the vaguest sense. You know, it, it does fit into that continuity, but it's not really anything to do with Spider Island, you know. That's my perfect gig. Well, <laughs> we digressed from that point. We, I don't we, even remember how we got onto that. We do, well, that, you know what? That's <laughs> that's the nature of this podcast. Um, we, you, you may have noticed, I don't interview. It's just a chat. That, it, yeah, they're conversations. And because um, uh, I'm a terrible interviewer, I Previously, no, 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 no as previously that. mentioned. Um, I think we're, we're sort of we're, we're heading for the hour and a half mark now. Well, right, we should probably put a um, and I and I know that that you have to be away in a bit. Uh, so I I guess um we'll now's as good a place as any having got to the end of that train of thought. Uh, before we start on another one, um, to uh, to sort of round this off. Okay. Um, so I, oh god. See what I mean about being a terrible interview? <laughs> I, I had I had a closing question, and I've forgotten what it was. Was it, what are you working on next? That's what most uh, people close with. Well, we're, we're, we've sort <laughs> of covered that. Right? We've sort of covered that. Well, we have, actually, because yeah, uh, that's Ghost Station Zero. Yeah. Ghost Station yeah. Zero is out is but, out soon from all good comic shops, including this one. Starting in August, yeah. Working on the third Coldest City book. Um, um, but that, I mean, don't hold your breath. That won't be yeah. out for at least a couple of years. There are... Yeah. There are ideas in motion for more the fuse, yep. uh, which is going to make customer Ed very happy. Yep, yep. Oh, I wrote a novel uh, last year as well. I took a few months off to write a, a prose novel. Oh, um, hopefully the first in the series. It's with my agent at the moment. Uh, you know, sort of going around publishers and what have you. So I can't really. I don't, I don't want to say too much about it. But we we will hopefully I will have something to announce in that field. And again, if you know, if we sell it in the way we want to. That will be the first in probably a trilogy or maybe more, you know, a series right. of novels. Um, what else? Uh, I'm talking with some TV people at the moment, but again, that's not anything I can really specifically talk about. And you know, if anything actually happens, you will hear about it you know, on the <laughs> interwebs. So yeah, I'm kind of uh, like I say, I'm in a very fortunate position where I can kind of to an extent pick and choose what I want to do mm-hmm. and so that's why yeah as I say Codename Babushka Ghost Station Zero is coming out soon uh, I've been writing a couple of sci-fi short stories um, I'm working up ideas for a children's book with an artist friend and like I said Megan Levins and I are hoping to do something in the future um, which I'm also thinking about but these are all 
this is all kind of just stuff swirling around. Yeah, I, I won't. I won't go because yeah, the, I know there are things you can't talk about. Well, and, and you know, I don't. <coughs> I could sit here and talk for ages about all the things that I'm hoping to do, but you could do that with you know, anybody. Any writer will tell you the same thing. It's yeah, and it's all pie in the sky until a contract actually gets signed. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get, I get that. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm going to nick your ending. Um, so. Where can people find you if they like what you have to say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, I am on Twitter, of course, as is everyone. Isn't, you know, I'm, uh, my, I'm not. Let's start. My website is my name, uh, anthonyjohnston.com, and that is spelled A-N-T-O-N-Y-J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N, anthonyjohnston.com. And then basically I'm on pretty much all social media under that name. So I'm on Twitter, at anthonyjohnston. Facebook.com slash Anthony Johnston. Uh, Anthony Johnston dot Tumblr dot com. Instagram dot com slash Anthony Johnston. And so on. Just look for my name. Because it is slightly unusually spelled, I can pretty much get <laughs> any social media <laughs> account I want just using my name. It's fine. So just search. You'll go to my website and there are links from there and you can find me on all manner of social media. Uh, and if you want to uh, send me a sort of a letter... Uh, you know, reader's letter for a letter column for Ghost Station Zero. We do those as well in the back of each Codename Babushka series. Uh, and there's an address on my website for those as well. So, yeah, just go, basically go there. That should be your starting point, And then you can find me wherever I am. You can find me from there. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to mention um, your podcast, Unjustly Maligned, um, which can be found on the Incomparable Network. The, the easy URL for that is ump.fm as in Unjustly Maligned Podcast, so UMP.FM. That that's will, what that stands for. Yeah, that will just take you straight to the website. Oh, no, did you not know that? No, I didn't know that. It never occurred to me. Uh, I named it for um, one of my favourite tech podcasts, which is uh, ATP, the Accidental Tech Podcast. And so there, there you are, right. is ATP.FM. So I shamelessly nicked that and got UMP.FM for mine. <laughs> that makes sense, no? Suddenly, suddenly, it's all working out. So, yes, thank you very much for um, coming and sitting in a closed comic book shop, um, <laughs> which well. smells weirdly of paint at the it moment. It does, actually, doesn't it? That's what I, yeah, I didn't like to I, ask. I'm building a new back issue unit, uh... and uh, since I'm my father's son, it's made out of reclaimed uh, pallets and <laughs> bits of old MDF that, been, that used to be part of the window structure here and uh, so I had to paint it and so the shop smelled weird DIY Reggie I see uh, it's, well you know also you can't buy them <laughs> nobody <laughs> no, sells no. furniture designed for holding comic no. anything no no that's probably true yeah. so I had to build the damn thing so yeah there you go it smells of paint I'm really sorry <laughs> no no you're welcome and it's been a lot of fun it's been, it's been good to see you again as well. yeah no it's, it has been a while actually I, you're one of the people that I, I for years saw once a year at, Cons, at, yeah, at yeah. Bristol, uh, and now nobody goes to Bristol anymore. No, we're all at Thorpe. And yeah, now I see you once a year at Thorpe. Yeah. That's the last time I saw you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. So with that, um, Anthony, thank you very much for coming in. I will see you no doubt at Thorpe Ball. And dear listeners, we'll see you at the gates. Thank you for listening to the gates at the gates. Let us know what you think by mailing us at mail four. That's the numeral four. Geeks at gates at gmail.com
Geeks at the Gates is a production of Venus Rising Media and is proudly made in Yorkshire. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash geeks at the gates. America. In the shop, it does. That's crazy. Um, is that just because Captain America doesn't sell? Um, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, I should qualify it by saying. That <laughs> I, should, <laughs> I should qualify it by saying that Captain America only sells one copy here. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but, but the Fuse also outsells several of the Marvel titles that we do sell more than one oh, of. Okay. So, wow. um, 